Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. Jack Bird is an emeritus professor of industrial engineering at West Virginia University. He's been on the engineering faculty at WVU since 1968 and has taught more students at the university than any other professor. Jack also serves as the president of the Interactivity Foundation, which aims to strengthen our democracy through the use of small group discussion process to explore diverse perspectives and generate an expanding set of divergent possibilities. Jack cares incredibly deeply about his mentorship of current and former students, which certainly comes through in this conversation. The impact he's made on former students is incalculable. He has dedicated the last few years to sharing his stories and thoughts around the growth of others, which is where he and I first crossed paths as one of my mentors, Mark Bidgood, was sharing Jack's newsletters and musings with me. After reading a few, I knew he would be a great guest. And lucky for me and the listeners, he's graciously accepted my offer to be on the podcast. Enjoy. Super excited to have Professor Jack Bird on the podcast today. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure. Looking forward to it. As we do with all of our guests here, I always ask a couple of kind of silly, hypothetical, get-to-know-you questions. So I'm going to start with a, a relatively easy one. Would you rather be in a rainstorm or a snowstorm? Huh. Probably a rainstorm. I actually don't mind rain. In West Virginia, we've got a lot of hills. Snow sometimes can get very difficult to navigate. But but it would be a rainstorm. Would you rather be able to look into 100 years into the future or 100 years into the past? I do a lot of reading, of uh, historical reading. I'm fascinated by how things get started. And so I'd probably look at the past. All right, and that dovetails well into our next question. Would you rather read fiction or nonfiction? Fiction, very much so. I had a mentor who was uh, very, very helpful to me in my career. And uh, one of the things he talked to me about was approach anything that you're approaching as as if no one had ever done it before. And that's been some of the best advice I've ever had, I think. I tend to be a pretty creative person, and, and it, it really helps me think uh, about issues in new ways. What book or books have greatly influenced your life? One that I've read recently that, uh, and this was a, a nonfiction, was a book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, where he analyzes different people's uh, approaches to life. He calls them givers, takers, and matchers. I've tried to live a life as a giver, and uh, that was sort of re really reinforcing to me. 
Well, you're certainly giving here today by giving, sharing some of your wisdom and giving, <laughs> giving some time here on, on the Build with Clay podcast. Any other books that come to mind that influence your life? Daniel Borston was the head of the Library of Congress and wrote a three-volume series that was called The Americans, and the third of those was Americans, the Democratic Experience. And the theme of the book was that uh, American democracy has lasted because the time from the a product or service being available to only the privileged to it, to it becoming available to almost everybody was very short in America. And uh, that's been a big influence on me. Think of almost any innovation that's occurred in our country. It didn't take very long for that innovation to go from being a innovation that only the you know the, the, only the privileged could could use to to something that everybody could use. You know, phones, for example, are, are like that. I mean, I, I go all the way back to phones when there were party lines and you had to call an operator to place a call for you. Where we are today, and you know, every child basically has a phone today. Yeah, it's completely different. It's weird seeing an eight-year-old with a cell phone. <laughs> yes. Well, those are great recommendations, and I'll make sure to put those in the show notes. So, Jack, you and I got connected because one of your mentees, Mark Vidgood, is one of my mentors. And he was one of the first mentors I had, and he was at West Virginia, um, and, and you mentored him along with, I know, countless others in that community. And the reason I think we got connected is because I started a newsletter a couple of years ago, and he started sending me your newsletter that you started. What prompted you starting that newsletter? I'm going to share with you a little bit of personal history. In the spring of 2019, I uh, found out that I had cancer. And I had taught over 50 years at the time. I had no intentions of retiring. But in the process of being treated for cancer, I realized that my days of uh, teaching in the classroom was probably over. So I officially retired from the university. And as I was going through the, the cancer treatment and especially the chemotherapy part of that, um, I'm not a good person to just sit and, and just do nothing. I, I don't I hardly ever watch television. And I like to write. So I started writing at that time. And the writing at that time was mostly for my own therapy. And this will be the spring of 2020, right at the, right at the offset of uh, COVID. And, and I, something dawned on me, maybe that my writing would be also helpful to alumni. I've maintained an alumni list over the years of all the students I've taught. And so I started sharing those stories with uh, alumni, got a very good responses from those. And uh, I, at the same time, I started posting them on LinkedIn because I, I had a, uh, a lot of connections on LinkedIn from the students I've taught in other majors. And, and those LinkedIn, and I, I started during the COVID things just thinking that maybe that would help each person to read it to think about what we're going through at the time and maybe maybe be a little bit of therapy for them as also. And so that, that was the origin of it. I've, I've continued to do that. So we're, we're now approaching the, I uh, started this spring of 2020, so now we're approaching 2022. It, it will be, uh, and April will be a second year. And, and I've had uh, close to 500,000 views on LinkedIn. 
and and they're with the alumni, which I'm really pleased about. In their careers, they you know they're in very high level positions, many of them, and they've shared the uh, messages with people in their organizations, and they're sharing it with their their children. They're sharing with their schools where their children go. They're sharing it with churches, and so I'm just really pleased by that amount of sharing that's going on from that. And I you know probably continue those for as long as I can you know continue writing them. It's quite the impact you're having, Jack. You know, the funny thing is, when I release them, you know, they're they're released in no particular order. Almost every week I'll get an email from one of our alumni saying, uh, Dr. Bird, how did you know I needed this this week? I didn't know. <laughs> it just happened to resonate with them at that time. I'm really pleased by that response that I'm getting from that and when I hear from alumni for other reasons, they'll almost always include a PS saying, please continue with the messages. Those are something I look forward to every week. I, I have one of our alumni who's a federal judge, and he told me that uh, he changes his docket so that he can look at the message when it comes out each week. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> it's just just funny things like that. You know, I... I uh, you know, they do seem to connect with people. They do, and it sounds like the people are providing a lot of motivation back to you to keep it going. Yeah, it does. It, it, it does. It's nice to, to know that they uh, they are reading them and, and they are valuable to them. So every guest I ask these two questions, Jack. So I'm going to start with there's a concept of a growth mindset and you know versus a fixed mindset. I'm curious how you would define what a growth mindset is. I'm working on a series now that I've been working on for about over a month. On it's another one of the messages I send out, and it's called hope. and And I think a growth mindset are people who have hope, uh, that sustain hope, uh, persistent with their hopes, that elevate their hopes. I, I just wrote one this weekend of a. Uh, one of the students that I taught who was from a very rural uh, background and a first his family to go to college, and, and, and his span of interests were very, very narrow. He's brilliant. He's one of the smartest students I ever taught, and we were doing a meeting in my office and advising, and I, I suggested to him that he needed to expand his uh, think about who he was rather than just this very narrow, you know, very bright student, but very narrow interest. And and I had some interest in art, so I gave him an art book to just say, why don't you take this home and read it and look at it? And this was right at the beginning of spring break. And he came back to spring break. He returned the book to me, and and he said, that I asked him if he'd looked at it. He said, yeah, I did, but I wanted to see the paintings for real. So I spent my spring break just touring museums. Wow. I don't think there's many college students that were touring museums in their spring break. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you really will be surprised on that. I mean, there's an image of college students going to Florida and having booze parties. That's not been my uh, not been my experience with them. Everyone talks about the purpose of life. What is your why of life? Why are you here? So how would you define what your purpose or your why is? 
when I was teaching, if I wasn't in the classroom, I would be working with students. And my day was literally filled up with appointments throughout the day with students. And the first thing that they did when they came into my office, I would shake their hand. As my, my next thing I would do is I would say, how can I help you? And that's my why in life. Helping others. It's a wonderful thing. An absolutely yeah. wonderful thing. Well, what's really cool is that segues into you creating a class pretty recently. Could you tell us what that class that you created? Yeah, the little bit of background. There's a disconnect, uh, and it's been written about, written about frequently between what uh, the working world is looking for college graduates to be able to do and, and what they actually come out of college being able to do. And uh, typically those are defined as, as soft skills. That's a term that I... I've used, but probably prefer to, to you know, it, it, it gives a kind of squishy feeling, and so I'm not real comfortable with that term. But it's uh, it's communications. That's one of those. But it's not communications in the in the sense that we teach in college. It's not writing an essay. I doubt that any college graduate hardly will ever write an essay after they graduate. It's the ability to ask questions of people to get at what they really are thinking about. It's the ability to read people uh, uh, before you talk to them. It's the ability to, to judge how to communicate with somebody based on their personality type. Uh, so that that's the communication part. And then there's other topics like uh, critical thinking, working in teams, uh, leadership skills, work ethic, you know, those are a number of those topics that are generally classified in that soft skills category. So when I uh, knew that I wasn't going to be able to teach face-to-face uh, anymore, I uh, contacted the president of the university, and he uh, transferred me to our provost, and I proposed that I develop an online course that would be uh, focusing on those skills, it would be a course that would be open to any student university from junior year on. I, I wanted junior year on because I wanted them to have a little bit more experience with life. It is online, so each each uh, each class period there would be three online sessions a week. They will read content that I've written and then I have a lot of experience with this. And it's very conversational. It's easy to read. And then I... Uh, ask them a question that takes that content into their personal context. So I ask them how they view uh, an issue from their own experience, what they're doing about that. And then uh, in addition to the, the assignments, there's an online discussion each week, and they will participate in that online discussion with their classmates. The experience of the course is that it's uh, – probably has some of the highest ratings in the university. I, I get very high ratings for that. I, I've kept up with students after they've graduated. The discussions are wonderful. I, I did not expect that students would be that open with their comments, but they're very open. They're very sharing with their comments. I'm particularly pleased that the class has a tremendous diversity of students in it. Um, We'll have, for example, working adults who are single parents of children who find it very difficult to uh, 
be on campus to take a class and need the need classes to graduate. And I'm very pleased that I'm able to provide that help to them. We'll have students in every major in the university that uh, are, are uh, pursuing a variety of careers, and I can help mentor them in that in those careers. You know, it's just it, it's a very interesting class to teach. It, it's interesting. The class fills up every semester, but it's by word of mouth. I don't do a lot of advertising. It's not well known by the advisors, but students tell each other. They tell their classmates, you know, you ought to take this course. So that's, I think, a good sign of the value of the course. I think that's a fantastic sign, and it sounds like that it's been around for a couple of years now. Yeah, this is a. Uh, I'm actually now in the fourth semester of teaching the class. It's an asynchronous course, so that means the students can uh, do the work at the time that uh, that they can fit into their schedules, which I like because I think that it caters to uh, students who are you know, needing to work to pay for college. I do put uh, deadlines on assignments. There is penalty for being late. Students don't seem to object to that after the first uh, time or so. I, I think there's a discipline of getting work done on time that's necessary. In my comments to their discussions, I feedback. I give them feedback on every discussion comment that they make. So I'm giving them a lot of feedback. I get to know the students very well uh, in this uh, in this course. And, and the remote teaching has gotten a bad rap. If you do it well, it it is equal to what you would do in a classroom. If I were to teach this in a regular classroom. I don't know that I would have gotten to know the students quite as well as I do now. So I, I love the examples that you listed. Uh, I'll relist a couple of them around asking the right questions, around how to read people, having critical thinking, developing work ethic, working in teams, developing leadership skills. Jack, can we go into a couple of these and talk about how to develop some of these skills or the maybe the implications of not having the skill in the real world? Yeah, let me talk about the one that's most recent and, and the uh, discussion question that they were talking about that they were responding to and, and the content of and the course was the role of mentors, and you had mentioned that earlier to, to, as well. One thing that surprised me is uh, I asked them an assignment question about do they, did they have a mentor in college, and not one of them had. I, I'm surprised by that, actually. And then... I asked them if they had a mentor, who would that mentor be? And they would describe the characteristics of who they would like to have as a mentor. And then the kind of questions that uh, in the discussions that came up, you know, there were several students that uh, said they were reluctant to seek out a mentor because they've always felt like they needed to go alone. They were stubborn. They And they admitted this in their responses. And, and my response back to them, I said, I, I, it's not a question of do you, will you have a mentor? You're going to need a mentor because uh, I, I don't think you really can go very far without one. But then uh, others talked about the struggles they, they think they're going to have in finding a mentor. And I, I suggested to them that they, that they won't have a struggle if they use the content from the, from the uh, lesson. And the kinds of things I talked about in the lesson was, you know, first off, finding the, the givers, uh, using the Adam Grant phrase, but then 
seeking out advice and, and advice on maybe personal things. But the key thing is always providing follow-up on how that advice worked out. Let your mentor know how that, that advice worked out. And after you do that a couple times, that person is going to be a lifelong uh, supporter of yours. And so, I, you know, I, I think coming from that particular set of lessons, I suspect every one of them will have that on the radar now when they start their careers. That's interesting that there was reluctance. I was thinking back to my college years, and probably outside of my father, I don't know if I actually had a mentor, which is strange now looking back on that because I'm now so mentor-citric. You know, I've, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today without the mentors I've had throughout my career. But in college, if for whatever reason, I didn't have that mentality. What's something specific that someone could do entering their career to go find a mentor? Well, I, I, you know, this is the case of perceptions. I, I think students are viewing faculty as not having an interest in, in guiding students because, you know, the um, – they're scared of faculty in many cases. The faculty are maybe not be that welcoming. Um, and, and certainly faculty incentives aren't geared to, to mentoring. So that there's a perception that students think they're, they're being a bother or faculty don't want to help. And then on the, on the faculty side is I, I think that if they find a student who really takes a genuine interest and in, in, uh, comes to them for advice and then follows up with them, faculty love that. I mean, they actually at times are kind of uh, lonely that they don't have more student contact. So there's a you know perception difference there. And I, I had the, the pleasure of teaching all the freshmen in our college. It was very unusual for a senior faculty member to teach all the freshmen, but I did. And the thing I mentioned the first day of class is that, uh, you know, I've, I've got a lot of experience and I can help you with any issue. All you need to do is just come me, and I, I will uh, I'll help you as much as I can. That seemed to resonate with students because they would flood into my office. But I think faculty have to reach out and say, if you need help, let me know. From a skill standpoint, another one that caught my ear was around asking the right questions. So how do you de go about developing that skill? I do what you're doing right now. I suggest that they that they not have a list of questions that they come in and ask one question after another, that they let each each uh, answer lead to the next question. If you do that well, you'll get information that you never thought you'd get. You know, with students, if they had gone into an interview or to talk to somebody on without guidance like that, they would have had a list of 10 questions, and they'd ask one question and, and ask another question and then ask another question. And never really get the real answer that they, they really needed to find out. Another thing I teach them is when the, uh, the person that they're interviewing suddenly turns very emotional, put your pen down. Just look at them and, and just let them continue. Don't look like it's being recorded at that time or you're taking you know recorded notes at that time. Another thing I suggest to them is that uh, before you ask your next question, always let some silence uh, be there because they may add more after a moment of silence 
then you realize, I mean, that then they, uh, the real stuff may come after the moments of silence. We That's don't have the to best do that advice. That you... <laughs> I was testing <laughs> you. <laughs> That's some of the best, that, that is some of the best advice, Jack. I find myself after getting that advice a few years ago from a mentor to count to five in your head. And it's amazing that by about second three or second four, that most people will start talking again because one, they don't like silence. They're not right. comfortable with silence. And then you're right. The information that can flood from that can be extremely helpful to the conversation. One of the things I emphasize to students is that uh, I don't care what their background or what their major is or what their job is. There will be times when they have to find out information from other people, and that's a matter of interviewing them. It's not interviewing for a job, but asking them about stuff. That ability to ask questions is essential. Yeah, one thing I've learned a lot about questions is trying to ask open questions versus closed questions. Yes, yeah, that's another that. part of the topic as well. You know, it's it's remarkable how the students uh, connect to that. And, and what I do in the discussions is I, I present them a short message that is probably a two-minute read altogether. And that short message really sets the tone for that discussion. As a result of that discussion, they have so much better insight than they would have had just by attending a lecture or doing an assignment. One thing your listeners may find interesting, that one of the lowest forms of uh, learning is reading. One of the highest forms of learning is saying and doing. So when they are uh, responding in a discussion, they are saying, and that's a much higher level of learning because they're putting it in their words. If they're just reading it, you know, I find most of the students, and I'm the same way, if you're reading it, your eyes may be passing over the words. I'm not sure how much is really connecting to your brain. But when you're saying it's really, your brain's really connecting them. And it sounds like you facilitate that a lot within this class. Yeah, really try to do that. Let me, let me share with you a, a thing around teams because this is a subject that's very dear to me. When I would start uh, my sophomore class, I would tell them that, you know, you go over the syllabus, and I'd tell them that part of the grade in the class would be group projects, that they're going to have a lab and they'll do a group projects. And there's a groan because they hate group projects. They hate that just for a variety of reasons, and a lot of times freeloaders and, you know, just, just don't like having their grade depending on somebody else's performance. And then I tell them that the classmates that they have in their group in this class will become their best friends for life, and they all laugh. I require them to sit together in class, and at the end of class, about every other class period, I will give them a five-minute problem to solve, and they have to work together on it. They have to turn it in as a group, and they work together because they're sitting there as a group together. And then they have a lab together, uh, and they get a group grade for that. And then as the semester wears on, about three weeks into the semester, I walk into the room, 
and the noise level is deafening. They don't even know that I walked into the room, and I literally have to scream out, shut up, because that, that group, every one of the groups are sitting there sharing their, their just personal experiences with each other, like they've known each other forever. And then this is a sophomore class, and then five, seven years later, I'll get a wonderful email with a bunch of pictures of that group at a wedding of one of their teammates. How cool is that? Yeah. And and every one of them, when they do their, we have something at the end, the last thing that they do in a class of senior year, they do something called Mountaineer Memories, things that they will remember from their experience in college. Every one of them talks about their friends that they developed in that project teams. You know, but you have to design that. It has, it can't be just accidental. You just can't let students uh, put them in a group and just say go go work as a group. You've got to you've got to educate them how to do that, and you got to set up a structure for how to do that. Yeah, you cultivated an environment that really cultivated teamwork. So, what are the implications? of not having this skill of being a part of a team? They don't get to value the people that are diverse from them. When I set these teams up, I try to add diversity to the teams. So every team will have international uh, international teammate on it. There will be students that, are, that are, have really high GPAs and some that don't have the best GPAs. Uh, every one will have gender uh, gender splits on the team. So they, they, they get to work with people that they may not have ever worked with before, cultures they may not have shared. One of the things I do is I teach them how to write job instructions. And uh, that's a hard thing to, to actually make an assignment of. And so what I do is I, I ask them to get together and cook a meal for each other. Every one of them has to cook something for their team. And one other student has to observe them cooking and write the job instructions for that. And so they, they have this team meal to, together. And again, there's an international student on the team, and there's all kinds of students on the team. And so they're enjoying food that they never maybe would have tasted before. They're probably having some beverages <laughs> that they enjoy. Uh, but they're getting to know each other outside of a classroom. And in a way that's uh, not in a uh, not a traditional way, so it's not all built around an assignment. So they get to know each other that way, and so that that establishes that bond. And that occurs pretty early in the nice semester when I taught the class. What is the importance of knowing how to write a job description? What's happening today in America? And you'll see this with the great resignation, that so-called great resignation going on. People leave the workforce and they're, they leave a legacy of a lot of knowledge that doesn't get captured. So when we have people all of a sudden leaving, you know, as we've had in the last couple of years, all that the knowledge that they have leaves. And so you know, writing job instructions is a matter of taking somebody that's very, very experienced in the job that's got a lot of job knowledge that never been put on paper. It's all the, the little ins and outs of doing things that uh, never get captured. 
I'll give an example. When I'm teaching the asynchronous courses, there are things that I know to do now because I've done it now for four sem- semesters that if I were to quit doing that, I'm not sure that other people would know how to do that because they would not have asked me those instructions. They wouldn't. The instructions aren't written down. So have you written them down now? <laughs> I, I What I do is, uh, honestly, I, I do this. I Every uh, Sunday I reflect on what happened that week, and then I send it to a group of colleagues I work with. So I, I am trying to share that knowledge of how to do that. Well, you're so right. There's a vacuum that's left when anyone leaves the workforce because there is so much unwritten that a person does in their day-to-day that is very much outside the typical job description. And that vacuum is hard to fill if there aren't instructions, detailed instructions left. And I think back to, I think it was a kindergarten or a first grade exercise where you had to write the step-by-step guide. One of you, you, you were paired with someone. You had to write a step-by-step guide of how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh-huh. And it's actually, and then the that person, the, the, your partner, had to then take your instructions and do them exactly. And almost no one could make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich because th- there was something that was left out. Right? It's like you didn't say to right. pull out a knife, or you didn't say to flip the bread over, or right? If if you <laughs> you had some funny looking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches after the fact or some unmade ones because it's a lot more difficult even for something simple to write instructions on. Right. One of the most recent messages I posted was uh, circling around leadership and and, uh, it's a story of a CEO with a uh, group of new employees and they come to work the first day and they're all dressed up and excited to meet the CEO and he takes them down to the corporate kitchen and shows them how to make rolls, you know, from yeast rolls. And they're all wondering, what in the hell does this have to do with leadership? So he shows them step by step how to make yeast rolls, and then they have to make them. And then they come back later in the day and bake them. And, and then the second day, they come to thinking they're going to get into some real leadership topics and takes them down to the kitchen again and so it makes me, make me some more rolls. Well, of course, half of them haven't written down the instructions or didn't pay attention enough to really know how to remember them. They all came dressed again in their finest clothes, and they've got flour all over top of them. And, <laughs> and, and as you go through this, each day they do the same thing for five days. And at the end of that five days, the CEO does a uh, debriefing he says, I picked my future leaders from this uh, this week. And then he goes through the things that he observed as they made these yeast rolls. That's the kind of thing that I think is the way you really judge people. It's their listening skills. It's their how they uh, approach a task, how they do continuous improvement. You know, if you ever made rolls, you'll know that if you don't do it the right way, they're going to turn out lousy. Um <laughs> And it's just, you know, do they make them better each day? Did they learn from each day? As a junior or a senior, you're learning this online, learning about leadership. How do you go about developing that skill? Part of my uh, hesitancy in answering that is it's different from every person. And I'll give you examples. 
we'll have students who are very shy and very quiet, but very genuine. The development of their leadership skills would be very different from somebody that is very boisterous and the quarterback of a high school team and prom king. They were very different because they got to tone it down. But you got to know each person, understand where they're coming from and their their abilities. So as a shy and quiet person, let's use them as the hypothetical as the example, what would be one of the first couple of things that you would tell someone like that of how to develop leadership skills? First is to understand what they're good at doing. I would put myself in that category. Uh, I almost never attend a social event. And if I ever do attend them, I generally find a corner where I can hide. Um, and so what I've adopted is an ability to ask people questions, how, how to help them. If I'm a leader at all, it's my ability to help other people. And then they they feel a sense of affinity towards me because I've helped them out. And I don't have to be the outspoken, boisterous quarterback type by in doing that. For the boisterous quarterback, what advice would you give them? <laughs> uh, first is is to shut up. <laughs> Turn it down. Learn to read people. Learn how to uh, handle each individual differently. Because the, the trouble with that type is they all they think the only way that you can be a leader is to be like I am. And you've got to teach them that they can come in different ways. They can be different leaders in different ways. See, they, they've really got to, to be able to observe people and, and know differences in people. My father used to tell me that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason to listen <laughs> yeah. twice, twice as much as we talk. So it sounds like that type of advice may be applicable to the boisterous QB. Right. That's right. But it's hard because you're right. In society, we if you were to ask probably 100 people what a, who a leader is, they're going to say tall, loud, quarterback, athletic. That type of person is probably going to come up most when, gosh, there are so many leaders out there that are that more quiet, introverted type. And they just don't get the same acknowledgement in society. But they're just as, if not more important. So that's pretty correct. And I've seen that with the uh, the students I've taught that have gone on to leadership positions. I've taught, uh, I think, over 150 graduates who are corporate leaders. And I define that as vice presidents and above in corporations. And these are typically major corporations. I'd say out of that 150, 20%, or less, were, were, would be identified by anybody as being leadership potential in college. Didn't have the best grades, may not have done all the activities, may not have, you know, nothing distinguishing them. So what's the quality but, that uh, comes to mind with those types of people? Practical skills, uh, personal, genuineness. I think the genuineness is probably the most important one. You know, they're not fake. They're just who they are. That's one of my favorite characteristics in anyone. It's someone who's genuine and doesn't change who they are depending on the situation that they're in. That's a hard thing to do. Right. For those that maybe aren't that way, 
today or maybe in the past. Let's say that, you know, you run into a junior or senior in college who just, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be genuine. Do you believe that they can become genuine? I've seen it happen, yes, and very much so. You know, I think there are various influences on that. You know, sometimes it's a really rough corporate review, performance review. Sometimes it may be a spouse. It may be the birth of a child. It may be uh, getting roughed up by a group of employees, you know, that don't appreciate their approach. There's various influences like that. Seems like from your work with your students and the interactions you've had across your life that it's your belief that you can find that genuine piece. And, and that's something that obviously is, is important as you go along in life. But one of the advantages I had in, in teaching is that uh, I taught a lot of first-generation college students. Uh, West Virginia University attracts a lot of first-generation college students. And they come from working-class families. And they, I think because of that background, they tend to be more genuine. They appreciate things that, are, that they are in life. If things aren't given to them, they have to work for them. So I think they're more genuine because of that. I think a lot comes from uh, from family backgrounds as well. And, you know, they can come from a very well-to-do family if their parenting is parenting of, uh, of really caring for others instead of entitlement or privilege. Jack, with your newsletters and I imagine within your classes, you share a lot of stories, a lot of stories that people people tend to remember stories more than most things. Where do these stories come from? Most of them have some background in terms of personal experiences that, that I that I create. Uh, you know, personal experiences I have. I generally write one or two a day, just to give you an example. And it's generally the, the spark of that story is something I read or something I see or something I remember. And then it, it sort of rolls around in my mind for a period of time. I just wrote one this morning that uh, had been rolling around in my mind for a couple of days. When I put pen to paper, it just comes. I mean, uh, the story just evolved very quickly, but it, it has to gestate. You know, I have to roll around. It has to roll around in my mind for a while. What's an example of one of those stories? Uh, the one I wrote this morning is uh, the title's uh, A Blending of Cultures. If you wouldn't mind, I'll just read real quickly a couple paragraphs from it. Please. It began as a fish sauce from Vietnam made of fish entails, uh, meat byproducts, and soybeans. Since it was easy to store, British traders took it on board their long voyages as they returned from Southeast Asia and China. The traders liked the taste as it was the change from the British typical, typical British fare. Once the sauce arrived in England, it was changed to include other types of seafood as well as nuts, lemons, celery, mushrooms, and other fruits. All these ingredients were boiled and that set for a while before salt was added. The resulting sauce was then added to soups and meats. An American horticulturist by the name of James Meese added love apples to the mix. We refer to love apples today by another name called tomatoes. Tomatoes were uh, brought from England from South America and considered poisonous. 
And so he changed the name based on that. The sauce had a remarkable shelf life, but tomatoes did not, and the result was a product that was contaminated with uh, bacteria and molds, as well as preservatives such as coal tar and sodium benzoate. Customers of the sauce revolted until a uh, Pittsburgh entrepreneur by the name of Henry Hines used only ingredients in the sauce that were safe. He was able to dominate the market for what was then called ketchup because success came from a unique blend of spices, some coming from Africa. And you think about that, ketchup comes from every continent, and we blended cultures into something we think of today as American. The ultimate melting pot. Yes. But people don't think about that. What I'd like to do in class is take something very familiar to people and add a totally different meaning to it. So when people think of ketchup now, they'll think about this multicultural society we live in. Next time I look at a ketchup bottle, I'm going to think of you, <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we add fish stuff to it anymore. But, but it, it did come from, a, you know, this. Just think about it. It evolved from everything. Even in Africa, added the spices that are there today in, in the ketchups that we use. So you do. Can, I've, I've read a lot of your stories like that, Jack, and, and you're right. You do such a good job of taking these stories and making them memorable, making them something that people think about, and that it's it's not foreign to anyone. Like, right, everyone, I think, you know, especially in America, everyone's got ketchup. I think it's something like 98% of refrigerators in America have ketchup. Yeah. It. it is probably the most universal food we have. So, Jack, you're the president of the Interactivity Foundation. Could you share what the mission of that foundation is? A little bit of background, if I could. It was started with funding provided by the estate of a man by the name of Julius J. Stern. And Jay was a uh, banker by profession. He and his wife didn't have children. He had always dreamed of setting up a foundation with the, the with his estate. And he was uh, particularly interested in people thinking through possibilities for for public issues that we face. Rather than having these mandated to us or told to us, let citizens come up with their own thinking about how these things work. So uh, we have three missions in the, in the foundation. One is to, to produce studies that are basically panel discussions of citizens and people with a lot of experience in areas. How would they view an issue facing our country? And then we have uh, public discussions of those issues. And then the third mission is education. So we teach students uh, how to have discussions, how to have collaborative dialogue, how to, uh, you know, participate in in productive discussions of tough topics with each other instead of the shouting and screaming that's going on today throughout our country. But those are the three missions. Uh, Jay has passed away now, but and I worked with Jay for thirty some years before his passing, so I became the president at that period of time. But Jay was the person that set the foundation uh, off on this track to where we are today. I'm very curious about the third part of that mission, about how to facilitate productive discussions about tough topics. How do you facilitate a productive discussion about a tough topic? If you go to the website, interactivityfoundation.org, 
there's an activity toolkit there, and the uh, toolkit has a uh, a series of activities that you can teach students how to do this. So it's going back to what I talked about earlier. Rather than just just say talk about this topic, you teach them how to talk about the topic. And we are now training faculty across the country to do that. We finished up a couple sessions this past summer teaching faculty how to incorporate these activities into their classroom. These are not activities to take away from classes. It it actually adds to the discussions that they're having. So it it makes the discussions in class much better. But there there is a strategy behind this. Just kind of leave it at that. But they're they're all on interactivityfoundation.org, and we're a very open organization. So there's a Creative Commons license that we provide so that anybody who wants to access these can do it, use them, not worry about intellectual property. Has this bled over to the corporate world? We have had that, yes. And we've had some. We've done some training of of folks in in a corporate setting and also in a civic setting. So we've had people who are facilitators, discussion leaders, and and, uh, civic discussions as well. In a former life, we did some training with a law firm in our state. It was one of the largest law firms. We trained them how to do this, and and later on, several years later, uh, we had feedback from them saying it was probably the best training they ever provided in their law firm. They made them so much better lawyers because of this. Wow. I've been in the corporate world for over a decade, and I think about the tough things that come up in, in the workforce and in, in life. I mean, you, you can even look back just you know a year ago when everything going on with the Black Lives Matter and just everything happening with the stress in our in our country of the United States and how that bled into the corporate world. And I'm just thinking about the discussions that I had or that my colleagues or coworkers were having and how impactful something like this could be to ensure that the leaders and others in the, in the organization are facilitating productive discussions. When you start bleeding personal beliefs and, and these very, diverse things that are happening in the world into the corporate workplace, it's a struggle for many to have a productive discussion. One of the things that uh, one of the activities we have is one that's based on values identification, where we start by asking each person in the discussion to describe their values. And then as they make a comment in the discussion, we said, how does that relate to your value? And when you think about how these points that they're making relate to personal values, it changes the tone of what they're saying. Yeah, it's almost immediate understanding or close to it. Or you can can kind of empathize, okay, because they have this value, I can see the connection point of why they would believe this certain thing about this certain topic. And maybe you don't agree with it, but you can understand. Right. I like that a lot. I had a student, I taught a class on facilitation every year, and this student in the class was, uh, she was very shy, hardly ever said a thing in class, and then she facilitated the first time, and, and I have never seen a better job of facilitating. Because she was shy, she was very good about getting other people to open up, 
because that was her coping mechanism. And she was just a star. I mean, she, I, I, I still remember the day that how well she did. But she went to work for a major corporation, one that everybody that listens to this will know. And she she had an opportunity to practice those facilitation skills there. And she became as well-known there as she was in my classroom. And it was a couple of years into her career there. She was facilitating discussions among some of the top corporate leaders in that company. It was somebody two years out of college facilitating leadership discussions of vice presidents and above. I just think about when I was... 23, 24, 25, and how intimidated I was when I walked into a room. It was almost like imposter syndrome. When I walked into a room with 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old people who have been in the workplace for so long, have these big titles, and to command that room and to facilitate an effective discussion in that room at that age, that's impressive. Well, the, the thing that's interesting, I mean, she would have the same experience with her peers, I mean, so she was intimidated by peers also. So this wasn't new to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's used to it. So, you know, <laughs> they're just a different title. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Probably someone like her, maybe maybe she doesn't see titles in that way that, that a lot of people do. It's just, it's just right. another person. Yes, yeah. Which is honestly a great way to think about it, no matter what type yeah. of situation you're in. It's just another right. person. Right. What advice would you give to a driven, smart college student about to enter the real world? I'll give you the advice. I, the, one of the last things I say to seniors, one of the, the biggest questions you're going to have to, to answer for yourself, do you want to be or do you want to have? Any advice that they should ignore, Jack? I'm not a big fan of, of self-help books and and uh, things like that. I think they have to discover things for themselves. If they don't know how to do reflection on each day's performance, then I, I think they really are, they're not going to find it in books. Every class I taught, and when I finished that class, I, I would go through a personal reflection on how I taught that class that day. And the next time I taught it would be very different from that. I mean, it would be very different, but it, I would have made it better than the previous time I taught it. If you can't do that every day, I don't think any book's going to help you. Good advice. It's always good to reflect. Give yourself time for pause. We talk about pause a lot now. And give yourself just time to reflect and think right. about it. And you can then put in those incremental gains and those tiny little, you know, be 1% better the next lesson you give. That adds up over time. You add 1% it, it every does. time, it does. every class. <laughs> yeah, almost it, everything it, it, I mentioned in this uh, interview today evolved over time because of, you know, I'd learned to do it better each time. Yeah, and you're still learning and still putting out all these great messages. And Jack, I, I really, really appreciate this. You and I haven't known each other very long. I appreciate you giving over an hour of your time to share your thoughts and your wisdom and all this you know, over time, you've you've developed a lot of really cool, neat ideas, and to be able to share just a small amount of them with us today is just so appreciative. And I just really, really appreciate your time, Jack. I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed this conversation today.
Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build with Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.